Morning, saints of God. See, I use a different reading that time. Um, okay, turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians this morning. And we're going to pick up in chapter 2, where we left off last week. Um, there's just something beautiful about preaching through the Word of God, um, book by book, verse by verse. And that's how we like to do it here. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18 this morning. So if you'll turn there, we'll read that together here in just a moment. You'll have to excuse me. I have the allergies and the weather going up and down. I may have to pause for a drink here and there because it just comes on suddenly. Everybody else dealing with allergies this week? Man, the tree's opened up and here it is, right? Thank goodness. <laughs> so... Let's find Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. And then once you've found it, if you'll rise with me in honor of the one who gave us this word. And we'll read this together this morning. It reads, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one, and broke down the dividing wall of partition, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to gather as your children, uh, as redeemed saints before you, that we can come together in one body, unified in Christ our peace. Thank you for the text that we have the privilege of looking at this morning that shows us the peace we have in Christ and with our fellow believers. I pray that you will remove any hindrances from me. Uh, I ask that you would take away any nerves, let your words speak uh, through my mouth, and the Spirit apply that to our hearts. In your holy name I pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So throughout Ephesians up to this point, um, Ephesians chapter 1, to kind of refresh everyone's memory, Ephesians chapter 1 begins with Paul expressing the details about individual salvation, and then he moves in in chapter 2 when he starts talking about what the salvific impact of the saving grace of Christ is, not only individually, which he just finished looking at, he also now speaks about what it means to be corporately impacted by salvation. So what does it mean when God saves us as a body, as a church body? And he uses the Jew and the Gentile to make that distinction and to, to show us what it is that Christ does and the peace that comes with other humans by his sacrifice. Um, and so last week we took a, a slight turn in 2.11 to, to look at that um, different outcome about how that impacts us on a, a body level, on, on a, a, a group of people being brought together, diverse people being brought together. And so the division that Paul had been addressing is now going to be resolved in Christ in the utmost extremity, as if last week when we talked about the circumcised and the uncircumcised, and we went back to Genesis and looked at the covenant of Abraham and how that impacted cultural relations in Ephesus, we are now going to look at the details of how Christ is our peace. So that's the title of the message this morning. It's also the first point. So if you had a bulletin in the back, you may have gotten some sermon notes. If you don't have those, feel free to grab them. But there's a spot back there for you to take notes. 
Point one is Christ our peace. Christ our peace, verses 14 to 16. I'm going to reread those, and we're going to dive right in and look at the beautiful picture that we have, because it's, it's absolutely imperative that we understand as believers in Christ that Christ has broken down the insurmountable partition of Jew and Gentile. Now, you may say, why is that so important? Well, every Gentile in this room should find that extremely important. But we also have to take that principle and then apply it to our lives today because this is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ throughout the ages, that we are unified. Christ broke down the worst partition in probably the history of mankind. The, the, the wall of partition, as Paul calls it, has been broken down. So we have to understand this to find our true unity in Christ as a body of believers. So let me reread 14 to 16 in Ephesians chapter 2. It reads, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. So as we break down first in verse 14, we see, for he himself is our peace. Now, that's a pronoun. What is that pronoun referencing? Who is the he himself? Um, and as any time you look at scripture, if you come into a verse that starts with a pronoun, you always, always, always have to look in context to ensure you understand who it's talking about. So when you quickly scan back over verse 13, you find out that it's Christ Jesus. So the he himself, the he himself who is our peace is Christ Jesus himself. Now this peace that he has brought, Paul's going to jump right in and make a reference to who made both groups one. Who made both groups one. Now, what groups would he be referencing? So again, referencing back to our text from last week, verses 11 through 13, we know that it's the uncircumcision and the circumcision. And we learned last week that that is the Jews and the Gentiles. So we know that Paul is now saying that Christ brought peace to Jew and Gentile. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 echoes this thought, also written by Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For also by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And we're going to talk in the future uh, here in just a few moments about the spirit. So now we know that Paul is beginning his next section, his ne next thought process with Christ being our peace and bringing both of those groups together. And then he makes an astounding statement. The last part of verse 14 says, and broke down the dividing wall of the partition. Now, for us, that may not mean a lot, right? We think of a dividing wall, a partition. There's lots of things that that can mean. But to a Jew in this century, there is so much wrapped up into that idea of a dividing wall. In the Jewish temple in the time of Paul, there was actually a wall that completely separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. And so the, the Gentiles were not allowed to go past this partition, this wall. It was a wall that was absolutely impenetrable. And so what Paul is doing is using this picture that not only the Jews would absolutely know, but it's very likely the Gentiles would know. The temple, the Jewish temple, was a world-known uh, structure. 
everyone knew about the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Everyone did. And so it's very likely that the Gentiles themselves would know about this wall, even if they haven't visited it before. Because this is the, the physical symbol of the separation that the Jews had in their mind that would keep the Jew and the Gentile from being mingled together. This partition. We talked last week about the animosity, the absolute animosity between Jew and Gentile. Jews thought that all people who were not Jewish, they would call them Gentiles or pagans, were absolute detestable. They were almost subhuman in a way. They were absolutely outside of God's grace and God's choice and favor. And the pagans thought the Jews were out of their minds worshiping one God. In fact, as I mentioned last week, most pagans thought the Jews were actually atheistic because they only worshiped one God. And so they had this pantheon of gods and all these people that they would worship and the pagans would look at the Jews and go, you guys must be atheists because you have one. So you don't have as many as we do. And so this level, and I'm going to bring this back up again, this level of animosity that is between the Jew and the Gentile was absolutely insurmountable from a human perspective. So Paul is drawing on this idea of this physical wall separating them to then get them to understand the metaphorical wall, the wall that is in their minds about coming together before God. Now, why would Paul make such an amazing connection? Why would he say something like this? Because that is the power of the gospel. Paul is trying to get both the Jew and the Gentile to see the wild difference between them, the insurmountable just gap, the, the rift between them that could not be overcome by them. In fact, they were hostile physically to one another. If one tried to go into, a Gentile tried to go into the temple, they would be beaten. If they tried to go around that partition, they would be beaten and, and taken out of the temple. And more than one offense would likely cause death. They would stone them. The Jews were persecuted heavily by the pagans. Is everybody on board with how big the separation is? Because we can't understand the power of the gospel if we don't understand the level of separation that was there between the Jew and the Gentile. And Christ is our peace that brought both those groups together. And in verse 15, he continues his thought. So he reads, 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition, and then he says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace. So let's stop there for a moment. We're going to break down verse 15, and we're going to park here for a little bit because there is a lot of important information in verse 15. I'm going to start with the, the slightly more dull stuff real fast and then jump into application. Because in order to understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand the words that he's using. So when you think of the words abolish and law in the same sentence, does anything pop into your mind? What about Christ? Did Christ use those words together? What about Matthew 5.17? Doesn't Christ himself say, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it? Isn't that what he said? Now Paul here is saying... That he abolished the law. So we have to know what this means because at face value, this looks like a contradiction, does it not? This looks like 
Paul is writing something opposed to Matthew or what Christ, Matthew recorded Christ saying. And so to do a very brief word study, just very quickly with you, the word abolish here simply has a different suffix than the word abolish that Christ uses. The word that Christ uses, think about abolishing abortion. Everyone in here, I, I pray if you're a believer, wants to abolish abortion, and that means to eradicate it. The way Christ uses it is to eradicate, make it like it never existed. We're going to completely terminate abortion out of, out of sight, out of mind. Brent, take it away. So Matthew 5.17, that is the word that the, the original language means for abolish. And, and Christ says, I'm not here to do that with the law. Now, Paul uses a different suffix. And what Paul is saying here with this word, although it reads abolish, is actually the idea to make no effect, to make ineffective, to make it no longer necessary. And so Paul has a different idea about the law than what Christ is saying when it comes to the word abolish. And to hopefully help you understand this a little bit better, let's think about the word love in the English language for just a moment. If you were having a conversation with one of your friends, and you were speaking to them for a long time, and you heard them say these four particular points during your conversation, I love the St. Louis Cardinals, I love my wife, I love my dog and I love my brother. In those exact ways, they're using the exact same words, the exact same phrasing, but for different objects of their love. That is four different kinds of love for the same word in the English language, correct? It's the same idea here that Paul, we in English cannot simply express adequately the difference in the variance of the Greek language between the, uh, the word that Jesus uses and the word that Paul uses. So it's wildly important that we look at context and understand what each author is intending to say with the word they're intending to say it with. Because frankly, I know we all speak English, I mean, no offense, the English language is very dull when it comes to having variants of words to actually express what one means. The Greek language is beautiful in that aspect. So now that we've gotten through the boring part, hopefully it wasn't too bad. I want us to understand what, what he is saying, the, the piece of, of information he's trying to deliver with this word is mind-blowing. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. So let's put our meaning in there. By making of no effect in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So in his flesh, the idea that Christ in his person as he was a human walking this earth, made to no effect the enmity. So that enmity is this idea of enemy or someone who opposes an opposition, this tension, if you will. So Christ, in his flesh, removed the opposition between Jew and Gentile by fulfilling and making no effect. Think, remember that, that meaning that we just established. By making no effect, the commandments, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now there's a lot of different interpretations about this. And I'm going to give you the correct one. And I'm going to explain why. Because we have to interpret scripture from scripture. And we have to understand what, what the Bible is saying in, in its whole. His flesh, the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. If you do a deep study on 
contained in ordinances, when Paul references ordinances in conjunction with the law, when he uses that wording there, he is actually referencing to the practical things that were added to the law, not the commandments themselves. And what do I mean by that? I'm wearing mixed kinds of clothing, eating certain foods, um, only walking so many feet from your house on the Sabbath. So these ordinance that he's talking about is taking the law. So let's use the Sabbath as an example. One of the commandments of God is, Thou shalt honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's the commandment, the law. The ordinances are those things that were falling onto that, that were added onto that, about not walking so many feet from your house and not picking up your animal or not making a fire, or not carrying firewood in if it's too many feet from your home and not assisting someone who's been beaten on the side of the road. Does that ring a bell for a story for anyone? Okay. So that's the idea that Paul is trying to get across is these ordinances, these things that have been hung on the law, Christ has made them of no effect. Now, let me tell you what it does not say, because there are some that would say this. And this is why I say it's an incorrect interpretation. There are some that would say that this means that the law is completely obliterated. It is abolished. We no longer look at the law as a guide for the Christian faith. It's called antinomianism. And so I want to make sure that we are all aware. That's a big word. It's a $25,000 word that just simply means anti-law. The idea that the Christian today does not have to follow the commands of God there's a difference between the ordinances and the commands. Everybody with me on that, okay? So when we think about the law of God and we look and see that this is the way that a believer who has been changed, who has been radically altered into a new man, has now been given a different desire, has been set free from his sin, is no longer enslaved to sin, we have a desire to glorify God in that regard. And how do we glorify God? by looking at the law that he graciously gave us in order to give him that praise. Now, there's this road, this balance that we have to find to keep from falling into a ditch. Okay, you guys stay with me on this. If you're on the road of the gospel, there's two different ways that you can look at things, and there's a ditch on both sides, and I don't want us to fall in the ditch. There's the ditch of antinomianism that I just mentioned where we say the law is, is completely gone. Romans 7, if you believe that antinomianism is true, write down Romans 7 and go back and read it. Paul himself, who wrote this as well, says, Shall we then sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. And in the Greek, that's the most expressive way of saying absolutely not. So we know that Paul did not have this idea of making the law and making it completely disappear. Out of sight, out of mind. But what we also know from Paul is that in places like Galatians and Corinthians, and he, he talks about the law no longer bearing weight on the Gentile. Paul is saying that those who come to Christ no longer need to be circumcised. Right? Let's think about Galatians. So we no longer follow the ordinances of the law. The, the sacrificial system has been fulfilled. We no longer have to worry about how much weight we put to a cake and how much oil to put in to bring to God the sacrifice because Christ is our sacrifice. But if you balance that with what Paul is saying in Romans, we know that we look to the law of God as his perfect revelation of his holiness and we strive for that. 
we mortify our sin. We look to God and go, thank you for what you have done. And now I praise you because you have set me free from the law. I praise you because you have given me your active obedience and your righteousness and made it where I no longer have to cultivate my own righteousness. I have Christ's. And so the proper road, the proper understanding of it is looking at the gospel as Christ fulfilling what we could not fulfill in the law, Christ doing what we could not do in his flesh. Paul says it, in his flesh, in his life, he removed the enmity between Greek, excuse me, Gentile and Jew, which ultimately was the separation of circumcision and the ordinances of the law. And so now Christ has fulfilled that. So we walk in the gospel and we look at Christ. You don't, you don't earn righteousness points after justification. You can bring glory to your father by doing what he says, but you are no more righteous in the eyes of the father than you are at that first moment of justification for the entire rest of your existence. Because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so you look at the law and you go, this is how I bring glory to God. This is how I show people that there's a change in me because I desire the things of God that I did not desire before that I have a changed heart. So you walk this road of understanding what the gospel means so that you don't fall into legalism and you don't fall into antinomianism because both of those are sinful. Is everybody with me so far? And this is why in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 29, this is what Christ was trying to get across to those he was teaching in Matthew 11. 28 through 29, we're, we're probably very familiar with this passage. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Those under the law are not at peace. Gentiles are still required, although they were not Jews, Gentiles, us, in our own flesh, in our sin, would still be required to maintain the perfect law of God to be right with him were it not for Christ. The Jews, though they fulfilled every law and ordinance, were told over and over again by Christ as he walked this earth that they did not understand the heart of the law, which was absolute perfection inside and out. So they then cannot fulfill the requirements of God to be right before him. But Christ gives us something new. Christ makes us brand new. And he takes this idea going forward. Look in verse 16. Or excuse me, the end of verse 15. So that in himself he might create the two into one new man making peace. So Paul was using this analogy, and he uses there the word man, and the Greek is anthropos. If you think of anthropology, the study of man, it's the word for man. Paul is literally saying that Christ brings two men, two different types of men, Jew and Gentile, and makes a new humanity. In the new covenant, the covenant of grace, there is no longer Jew and Gentile. There is only converted and unconverted. In the world we live in today, that's it. There is a new humanity. We are a new race, if you will. Some of us have interpreted it that way. We are a new race of humans. 
united in Christ by his grace, with his spirit indwelling us, bringing us into one body. There's a couple different places I want us to look to think through this idea. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. I'm going to read that one, but if you want to start turning over to Colossians chapter 3, if you'll turn there, it's a couple of verses I'd like you to follow along with me. So I'm going to read, read Galatians 3:28 first. It reads, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here we see Paul explaining even further on the idea there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free man. So there's no race. There's no ethnicity. There's no class. There's no male and female in Christ. There are no separations in the body of Christ by any human standard. We are all one in Christ. Paul expands on this idea in Colossians 3, 10 through 11. If you've turned there with me, Colossians 3, verses 10 through 11. It reads, And have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. Now listen to this, but Christ is all and in all. There's no other way to say that all those who are believers in Christ are brought into Christ through him and him alone, and we are one new humanity. It's getting warm, so I apologize. <clears throat> but there's no other way to say it. And so what we have to understand is that Paul is in effect saying that Christ, the second Adam, made a new humanity, a new man, that the first Adam failed to maintain. Think about that. The first Adam failed to do what God said and plunged all of humankind as their federal head into sin and death. And Paul is saying, now the second Adam, who in his flesh fulfilled the law, that we could not, and destroyed the enmity that is between all human beings because of sin, and made a new human race, that made a new mankind that is right before God and will spend an eternity with him. That's what Paul is saying. There is a new man. And in that one new man, he is making peace. He is making peace. Think about that. I drove home the absolute animosity between Jew and Gentile to show you the miracle that is God making peace between them because there is nothing that can divide his church. If God can overcome the difference between Jew and Gentile, nothing can divide his body. Nothing has that kind of power. Now, lest, I'm, lest I be misunderstood, I want to make sure and understand, when I talk about unity in Christ, I do not mean uniformity. Because we are believers in Christ does not mean we are all exactly the same. Does not mean we all have to have the same job, wear the same clothes, listen to the exact same kind of music. That's the beauty of the gospel. Unity in diversity. God brings those whom he has elected into salvation brings them into his body as different as they are, the different classes, the different ethnicities, the different cultural backgrounds, the different sins that we've all had. That's a big one in the church today. We set up classes within the church based on who sinned the worst. 
Think about it. Do we not? Shame on us. The power of the gospel overcomes every difference that humanity can can come up with that sin brings about, including the difference between Jew and Gentile. Paul is taking the most extreme example and showing us that we have unity in Christ and in nothing else. There's a really good example of this. I was thinking through this this week. Our culture today thinks so much about unity and peace, do they not? Like that's, that's, been, that's probably been in the last 75 years, the reigning mantra since the 60s, right? The sexual revolution, peace, everybody get along. And this has developed into something called pluralism. And if you don't know what that is, I encourage you to take a look at it, but I'm going to give you a brief explanation. Pluralism is the idea of unity in many diverse things, and it, it translates into the idea that everyone has their own truth, We accept whatever their truth, they say their truth is, and we all just ignore it if we don't like it, and we just get along. We just get along. Pluralism. That is a false sense of peace that humanity, in their sin, has attempted to still deny God and yet still have his benefits. Did you ever think about that? How often do humans try to have the benefits of God without having God himself? How often do we do that? And so the pluralism in our culture today is, in my opinion, responsible for everything that we're experiencing in our country today. The gender confusion that is absolutely sinful and against God. The idea of same-sex marriage being okay with God. The idea of abortion and murdering our own children in the womb being okay before God. And the idea that all of us, with all these different ideas, can simply get along and build this fantastic country if we're just tolerating each other. Now understand, I'm not talking about being intolerant to others in an antagonistic way as believers. But what I am saying is, the world is looking for peace so much in their ethnicity, in their class distinctions, in their cultural distinctions, in their past sins, in their current sins, in their future sins. They just want to be at peace. And the, what they don't realize is there is no peace apart from Christ. And I think John Lennon, I think his song Imagine really sums up the cultural idea. Because in that song, he sings about and talks about This idea of peace, world peace. We have to have peace. And one of the verses specifically, and he lists out all these different things, that if if these things were this way, we would have peace. And one of them, he says, no religion. That's a verse of his song. Imagine if we had no religion, we'd have peace. And he goes through this. Imagine if we had this, that, and the other thing, we'd have peace. that That is the idea in a song of what the world says we need to have peace. Faith is not what we need to abandon for true peace. Religion is not what needs to be set aside for true peace. Brian Chappell says it this way, Neither the end of religion nor the blend of religion, but rather the blood of Jesus Christ removes the barriers between all peoples and brings true peace to this world. It is the blood of Christ. That is the only hope for humanity. That is the only hope for us to have true peace. Everything else is a fake peace that will fall apart, regardless of what we pursue, 
regardless of changes that we make, regardless of new laws of tolerance or whatever else you want to call it that we put in, someone tries to put into place, the only peace that we will have is the same peace that rectified the, the rift between the Jew and Gentile, that powerful peace that is unexplainable to an unconverted soul. The unexplainable peace that we as Christians can look at the world and all the turmoil that's here and go, my God is still sovereign. If this economy crashes next year, my God is still sovereign. If we go into World War III, my God is still sovereign and I'm a child of the King. That is a peace that the world simply doesn't understand. But it's a peace that even the Romans in the time of Paul, and I think there's a reason Paul is emphasizing this so hard. Anybody in here heard of the Pax Romana? The idea of the Roman peace, the idea that Caesar himself is the only true God, the only true deity that can bring this peace onto the earth. Has anyone heard that recently from our culture? Paul is using this as an example that there is no peace. The world cannot bring it about. Verse 16. He continues his thought. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. We're going to come back to the beginning part of verse 16, but I want to reference the end first. Again, Paul brings it back and he, he closes this idea of putting to death the enmity of the law of ordinances. That rift of division of the requirement of the law, he fulfills that we might have peace with God and peace with man. And that's my second point. We'll get there in just a moment. Before I do, I want to make sure you've got some points of application. I sprinkled them through the passage this time, but I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. We must avoid partiality in the body of Christ. We have to be unified around the one thing, the one thing that brings true peace, and that is Christ. We as a new church plant, being only a few weeks old, have to remember it is Christ and Christ alone that brings us unity. We also have to remember to walk that road and not fall in the ditch on either side. There's ditches, guys. I'm telling you, you can fall into them so fast. So fast. The law is there for a purpose. We are not anti-law. But we are not legalists putting the weight of the law back on people who have been set free by Christ. We use the law as it's adequately and correctly called to be used and by the entire account of the New Testament. Paul, Peter, James. They all have the same idea of use. This is to glorify God. This is the fruit of what Christ has done in you. Don't fall into those ditches. And we have to remember and apply that nothing in this world can bring us peace. The world can chase all their different ideas, all their pluralism, all their relativism. They can keep sinking all the peace in all the wrong places, but trust your Savior regardless of what the future may hold. Point number two. Oh, I've been at this a while already. Okay, there's only two points though, so just so everybody takes a deep breath. <laughs> Peace with God and men through him. So if you have the notes from the back, number two. Peace with God and men through him. Let's read verses 17 and 18. 
And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In verse 17, the he um, is a reference to Christ. So we have to make sure we're understanding our pronouns again. But verse 17 is actually Paul quoting loosely from Isaiah 57, 19. So if you want to write that down or if you don't have that in your Bible, make a note of it there. This is Paul quoting Isaiah 57, 19. Now, although that passage in context is God sending a message to Israel about those who were dispersed from Jerusalem. So y'all remember in the Old Testament, Israel, for not obeying God's commands, God allowed enemy countries to come in and wipe out Jerusalem and disperse them. It's called the diaspora or disbursement of the Jews. And so in context, that verse in 5719 is speaking about the Jews who were near and who were far away. But Paul is reapplying that here. And Paul says, and he came and preached the good news. What is the good news? What is in the word for good news? Pop quiz, gospel. So he came and preached the gospel of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. God himself, Paul shows us how to apply this. God himself came and preached the good news. What, it was, what was Christ's message the whole time he was on this earth? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is a peaceful proclamation. The kingdom of God is all we find peace in. And so Paul has explained that this was prophesied by Isaiah and has been fulfilled through him, verse 18. Through him we both have our access. If you jump back to verse 16, the very beginning, it says, And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Paul is making it very very clear this peace is not only between mankind in the body of christ but he also reconciles christ reconciles us to god as this as if the last chapter and a half from verse one chapter one verse one till now he hasn't made that abundantly clear he's referencing it again christ reconciles us to god and gives us the peace that we cannot attain ourselves that is the gospel the gospel is the good news is we are separated from god by sin we have a law to maintain that we cannot maintain our perfection is squandered and lost before we take our first breath and we are separated from him that's the bad news you guys ready for the good news but god but god gave us his son who lived a perfect life on this earth and took your sin and your sin and my sin and your sin on that cross, took the wrath for it after living perfectly, mind you. That was the requirement that God set down. And he took that and gave his life so that we might have peace and be reconciled. You know what that word reconciled means? Made peace. Made at peace. That's literally what the word reconciled. That that aggression, that enmity is no longer there. We are reconciled to God. And in that reconciliation, that gospel, that good news, we also have the beauty of our unity as a body of Christ. Our culture today has removed all 
understanding of what a true united body of Christ should act like or what it should be. The consumerism mentality of the church today is an atrocity and an affront to God. We should not be here hoping to be entertained. We should be here united in the peace of Christ that we know broke down the barrier that all of us from different backgrounds, from different places, all of our different sins, we are united in Christ and we are here to worship him. The church is not for entertainment. The church is here to worship God the way that he says to be worshipped. Let us not forget that. I want to read Romans 5, 1 and 2 to you. This is Paul again. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. I think this, I found this this week, and this is a really good wording for what Paul is trying to accomplish here. This preaching, as Paul references in verse 17, this preaching is nothing less than the preaching of Christ Jesus himself, which the apostles wrote in words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because of the writings of Paul, Peter, and the other apostles, we can see just what Christ accomplished at Calvary, even if it will take an eternity to plumb the depths of the cross. Praise God for his cross and his sacrifice. And so in effect, Paul is saying that Christ, who called himself the door in John 10, Christ used that analogy, did he not? I am the door in John 10, 9. Paul was essentially saying it is in fact a double door that has been flung wide open, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile, that all are in need of Christ. Because the Jews were still thinking that this division of partition was going to be the Gentiles coming into the temple and worshiping like we do. That was the Jewish idea. That's, that's what the Jews struggled with the entire first century. Acts 15, the first church council on record was Acts 15, and they debated on how much of the law the Gentiles were supposed to follow. The entire book of Galatians was Paul using some extreme language on people who would say Gentiles have to serve and do the Jewish law. And yet Christ fulfilled that. The double door was blown wide open. And this sets the stage. What Paul is doing here in Ephesians as a whole is setting the stage for the rest of the book. And I know I keep saying that every Sunday I say he's setting the stage because he is. He's getting deeper and deeper into the things of Christ to show us the last three chapters when he calls us to the imperative or the command, when he calls us to do the things of God, he can go, this is why. This is why. Christ did this, and you're saved. Glorify him. Christ brought you unity. Be unified in him. Christ made you a new father and a new mother. Here's how fathers and mothers act. Children, you're, you're children of Christian parents. This is how you act. Church, you're unified. This is how you put on Christ to stand against the attacks of Satan because he will attack his church. Do you see how Paul is going to take this through the rest of the book? In fact, I'll call your attention to Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We're not even close to there yet. We'll be there sometime in the summer. 
but it says there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Who is over all and through all and in all. Do you think that Paul's theme of Ephesians is unity for the church? I think it probably is. So we've covered a lot today. There's a lot of things that we have spoken about when it comes to Christ and his peace. I want us to, to leave here today with the application, the, the mindset that we are to look at the peace that Christ has given. We are to rest in the work that he did. Who did Paul put forth over and over in today's text that is our peace with God and our peace with men? Christ. Who carried in their flesh the ability to do away with the ordinances of the law that we are no longer responsible for? Christ. Who is it that mounted that cross by his own choice and gave up his life? Christ. Christ is our peace. So now that we've traveled through this point of Ephesians, I think it's safe to say that we have in our mind, and we're going to continue going through it, but we have in our mind that Paul is showing the glorious glory of Christ's grace, of God's grace in Christ. And that that simply does not mean just justification. And I don't mean to downplay justification. What I'm saying is we as gracious, 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 well, we as receivers of God's grace, there we go. We as receivers of God's grace, we get to have so much more than just justification because he's gracious. We get peace with each other. We have a body. He's provided instructions for us. We have the spirit indwelling us. No one before the day of Pentecost have what we in this room have. They, none of them did. None of them were indwelt by the spirit of God at the moment of justification as we are. How beautiful is that? Let us be unified in that. I'm going to close my, my sermon with this quote and then a prayer. This is, this is the best I could sum up with, and it's from Calvin. The grace of God the Father and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit dwell with us forever. That's my charge to you. The grace of God, the Father, and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit dwell with us forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your sacrifice in your son that has allowed us to gather here as a unified body in peace with you and in peace with those that we're sitting next to. We thank you for taking that enmity of the ordinances, those things that were added on to the law that were not the heart of the law. The heart of the law is to show us your perfection. Thank you for showing us our need for you. And I pray that we will walk the road of salvation of the gospel and what it truly means and not fall into those ditches that we discussed. Help us to focus on you and resting in you and what you've done. That we might rise and, and joyfully look to your commands as something we desire as you repent and change us day by day through the working of your spirit. Help us that we might live this week in a way that honors you and glorifies you. And in those moments where we stumble, because they will come, Lord, we know they will. I pray that you would help us to look to Christ. 
that we would rest in his finished work and strive to glorify you going forward. In your holy name I pray. Amen.